Sometimes you should listen awake because it's excellent. With Jasmine Chine Himes, Ian Morrison, Gabriella Perez, Josh Hayes, Niall McCallum, Tana Joseph, and Emma Alexander. The Jodcast, May 2018 edition. Hello, and welcome to The Jodcast. I'm Josh, and joining me in the studio is Niall. Hi, good to be back again. It's good to have you back, I suppose. In this special, uh, we have several interviews uh, from the floor of the recent European Week of Astronomy and Space Science, or EWAS, uh, which was held as a crossover event with the UK National Astronomy Meeting, NAM, in Liverpool uh, uh, at the start of April, April 3rd to 16th. Oh, that's exciting. I didn't, I didn't realise they'd actually had them as a crossover. That's pretty yeah, cool, because so they're was, both quite big things the, on like their the, own, the, right? like they're, they're both huge. So EWAS is basically like, here are all of the astronomers from Europe, mm-hmm. uh, and NAM is... Here are all of the astronomers from the UK, but there's kind of like, because there are sections within Europe that do things that the UK doesn't and vice versa, mm-hmm. there was kind of a lot of crossover. One thing that was really weird, though, was that everyone forgot it was NAM. Right, um, yeah, it was. It all just became very EWAS-y. Like, everything it, was EWAS, because right. it was the big thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you had all of these really big European astronomers come along, and then just kind of day... Like the introduction, we had Martin Rees, the astronomer royal, yeah. give an intro. He gave a really, really, really good talk, actually. Um, but he was like, yeah, he just kind of went, oh, yeah, this is Nam as well, by the way. <laughs> and then after that, everyone forgot. Oh, that's um, a pity because you always have to make the jokes after you come back from mm-hmm. the Nam conference that you don't know, man, you weren't there. Like... Yeah, but it turns out no one was there. <laughs> exactly. Um, the. <laughs> Anyway, um, so we've got a load of interviews from that, um, and we also have Ian Morrison, Jasmine Chinheims, and Gabby Perez, who take a look at what's happening in the main night sky. Uh, but first, Tana Joseph is here with this month's news. In the news this month, launch of NASA's TESS Observatory, detailed view of a supermassive black hole's jets, and planet-forming disks revealed around young stars. In our main story... On the 18th of April, NASA's latest exoplanet research satellite was launched. The Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite, or TESS for short, was sent into orbit on a SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket. The launch was initially scheduled for two days prior, but had to be delayed due to a technical issue with the rocket. TESS will use its thrusters, and even a gravitational assist from the Moon, to settle into its correct orbit around the Earth. This process will take several weeks, and once it is in its proper orbit, the satellite will undergo a further 60 days of technical tests before starting its science observing. This will be the first space-based monitoring observatory to search for planets outside our solar system. Tests will specifically be searching for Earth-like planets that could potentially harbor life. In order to find these exoplanets, tests will observe stars and look for the slight dimming and rebrightening that indicates a planet has passed in front of the star, called the transiting method. This is the same search technique used by the highly successful planet-hunting mission Kepler, which was launched in 2009 and is now running out of fuel. TESS will be able to observe an area 400 times larger than what was covered by Kepler. In addition, it will be observing stars that are close enough for astronomers to be able to do follow-up studies, something that was not possible with the systems observed by Kepler. Thomas Zerbachen, Associate Administrator of NASA's Science Mission Directorate, had this to say, We are thrilled TESS is on its way to help us discover worlds we have yet to imagine, worlds that could potentially be habitable or harbour life. 
Our next story is about supermassive black hole jets. Supermassive black holes are millions to billions of times more massive than our sun and are known to reside in the center of most galaxies. Some of these enormous black holes eject immense jets of charged particles that travel at nearly the speed of light. However, it is not currently known exactly how these jets are launched from the black hole. Earlier this month, an international team of astronomers announced that they have observed jets being launched only 12 light days from their source around a black hole, in the radio galaxy Perseus A. This is only the second time a jet has been observed so close to a supermassive black hole. The observations immediately surprised scientists, as the jets were seen to be much wider than predicted by current theories of jet formation. This may mean that the jets originate further away from the black hole than previously thought. These extremely detailed images of the jets were made possible by using Very Long Baseline Interferometry, or VLBI. This observational technique works by linking several radio telescopes together to form a telescope that is effectively as large as the distance between the individual instruments. For this particular experiment, the VLBI configuration, which is called Radio Astron, consisted of more than 20 of the world's largest ground-based telescopes, as well as a 10-meter Russian space-based radio telescope, resulting in a virtual telescope of 350,000 kilometers across. And lastly, we turn back to stars. The Very Large Telescope, or VLT, in Chile has been used to take images of the disks of material around stars from which planets form. These disks are usually not visible due to the brightness of the host star, but by blocking out the star's light in the observations, astronomers were able to get a look at the circumstellar disks, which are made up of gas, dust, and planetesimals, or protoplanets. The study focused on a type of young star called T-Tauri stars. These stars are less than 10 million years old and have masses less than about three times the mass of our sun. Only stars that are between 230 and 550 light-years away were included, as their proximity makes the circumstellar disks easier to observe. The images revealed that these disks come in various shapes and sizes, from dense and puffed up to small and faint. By studying these protoplanetary disks, we can learn more about how planets and indeed solar systems form. Thanks for that, Tana. So, um, the main bulk of the show this time is going to be uh, some interviews that myself and Emma Alexander managed to scrounge together uh, in between attending talks at EWAS. So and giving talks and giving talks. Yes, I I did plug you there. (laughs) Thank you, Niall. I did give a talk about um, about Spearnet and what we're doing uh, with networks of telescopes. But I think I might hold off on that to explain for another another edition. Yeah. Um, so the like the the way the conference kind of works was that you'd uh, there's a big timetable and kind of different days were different different subjects. So there was a lot of stuff on outreach, public engagement, and then there were a couple of days on planet stuff as well. But the Friday, for me, there was nothing of interest. <laughs> so I just spent the entire time wandering about with a microphone and the recorder and just accosting people. That's fortunate for all of our listeners then. <laughs> yes. Um, and I think Emma was similar on the Wednesday, I think. D- days don't matter. Like yeah. this, it, it's all on happening our day on a day conference. But, um, they were not busy. Yeah, no. For, you will, <laughs> you'll probably hear a lot of background noise in these. Um, so they were all done very much on the fly in a very busy room. It was great fun. We've made quite a good few new, good new friends um, for ourselves and the Jodcast. Uh, but first up, Emma is going to interview Hayden Goodfellow about uh, current and future work happening at Kielder Observatory. 
I'm here at the European Week of Astronomy and Space Science, currently being held in conjunction with the UK's National Astronomy Meeting in Liverpool. Joining me is Hayden Goodfellow from Kilda Observatory. Hi Hayden. Hello. Uh, thanks for joining us. First of all, can you tell us a little bit about Kilda Observatory? Yeah, so Kielder's a public observatory. We operate out of Northumberland Dark Sky Park. We have four telescopes that are larger than 20 centimetres or uh, six inches in aperture. We have two fully manual 30 centimetre or 12 inch telescopes, which we put in an observation deck. We also have two 40 centimetre telescopes that are used for computerised observations, mostly involving astrophotography. But we are hoping to branch out into photometry and exoplanet transits in the near future. So really, from my perspective, you're living the dream because nowadays a lot of astronomers don't actually, they're not based at observatories, they don't actually make it out to observatories to do their own observations for various reasons. So how did you end up where you are actually working at an observatory? It's a bit of a strange story, mostly location. I grew up in a small town called Langham, which is just over the border with Scotland. And historically, the area just south and east of the town was Armstrong country. If you go back to the days of Scottish clan warfare, the Armstrongs were famous for their raiding trips across the border into England. And when Neil Armstrong became the first person to walk on the moon, the most famous man in history, he was invited to the town. And in 1972, he spent the afternoon there. He became the first freeman of the borough. 20 years later, when I was at school, people were still talking about it. So that was my first exposure to space, hearing the story of this local connection to one of the greatest endeavours in the history of humankind. And a lot of my family come from the Kielder area. So when they set up an observatory there, I went along as a volunteer. And then when I graduated, they gave me a job, which is quite nice. So you graduated in something relevant to astronomy, right? Yeah, I did astrophysics up at St Andrews University, but a lot of my colleagues, their background is in practical astronomy, so they, they had their own telescopes, they know the constellations, which when you're running stargazing events, about looking through telescopes is a useful skill to have. So you mentioned the telescopes that you have at the observatory. Do you want to elaborate a little bit more about them? And also, I'm particularly interested in what you can see with them from Kielder, given that it is one of the darkest skies in the UK. So my favourite objects to observe with these telescopes are globular clusters. Because from a fairly light polluted area, from a town, all you can ever see is a smudge, even with a fairly large telescope. But the 16-inch telescopes at Kielder, when you point them at M13 or M3 or M92, I'm just showing off now. (laughs) Um, when When you point them at these globular clusters, you can resolve individual stars right down to the core. And it's one of the most incredible sights. Whereas if you look at galaxies... They all just look like smudges, but we can see really, really faint ones. So what's the best telescope that you have at Kielder? Do you you have a favourite? We have a 16-inch Mead ACF telescope, which is a slight update on the Schmidt-Cassegrain design. And that is very high magnification. It's brilliant for planets. It's brilliant for distant galaxies. And it's the best for globular clusters. What kind of things do you do at the observatory? All of our events are based around the public coming and actually getting the experience of being under a dark sky, looking through a telescope, but it's Northumberland. The weather isn't always in our favour, but usually on most of our nights we do get the chance to open up and do a little bit of observing. Even if it's just the moon or some double star systems, most people who come to the observatory get to see something. But on those nights where it is completely clear, completely moonless the whole night through, it's, it's unforgettable. I remember every night like that. I've ever had. So I was fortunate to go up to Kilda myself uh, well, a fair few years ago now and 
Unfortunately, I think I hit one of those nights where it was more cloudy than not, but it was still breathtakingly dark and the surroundings as well. It's set in a really nice location as well, right? Yes. I mean, Kielder is such a beautiful, beautiful place. A lot of the economy in the area based around tourism. It's in the UK's largest working forest. So there's a lot of forest walks, lots of wildlife. I think if I remember rightly, Kielder has the UK's largest red squirrel population. And bringing the observatory to that area has allowed some local accommodation providers to stay open, supporting jobs all year round. And it just adds to all the other beautiful things you can do by the lakeside. Do Kielder have any big plans for the future? Do you see yourself continuing on with the great work that you're doing with public events? What's coming up? We've just opened a brand new facility. It's called the Gillian Dickinson Astrophotography Academy. We've been lucky enough to secure funding from a number of sources, from the Heritage Lottery Fund, from LEADER, and a local trust called the Gillian Dickinson Foundation. And we've constructed this new space, which has a teaching space, capable of holding 15 people and another observing dome, which is going to have four telescopes in it. And these telescopes will be rigged up. They will be designed for astrophotography. They'll not be visual instruments. They are for getting data from the sky. And we're hoping to watch an exoplanet transit in the next few weeks. That sounds all very exciting. So what are you going to be doing with that data that you collect? Is it just to image or is there any science that you're going to be doing with it? Initially, it will be purely for for imaging, to see how well the system works. If the exoplanet transit system gets to the right sensitivity, we might look at looking at potential exoplanets rather than just confirmed ones. What brings you to the conference this week? A number of things. Mostly, we've just started a campaign of school visits. So, you know, we appreciate that the observatory is not the easiest or cheapest place to get to. Kielder's very remote, very far away, and it's a lot of petrol to get there. So we've started a campaign of school visits in conjunction with various education boards in the Northeast. So we're taking an inflatable planetarium into schools to try and inspire children who are from areas with what we call low science capital. So unlikely to have science-based role models in their lives, unlikely to go to university, to take this message to them and to inspire them to study physics at university. So I came to the conference to meet with potential collaborators to get material for taking into these schools and just to promote Kielder as a as a place where there's a team that can take your message further to the universities around the UK and Europe. Brilliant. Well, all the best with that and thank you for joining me today. No, thank you very much for hosting me. It's been a pleasure. Uh, in our second interview, Josh Hayes interviews Dr. Amy Tyndall about science communication inside and outside of astronomy. Hello, I'm Josh. I'm here at the European Week of Astronomy and Space Science 2018 in Liverpool. And I have with me today Amy Tyndall of the University of Edinburgh, who is no longer an astrophysicist, actually. So this is quite an interesting interview. So what did you do? What are you now doing? I'm afraid to say no longer a practicing astrophysicist. <laughs> um, but yes, I did my PhD at Jodrell Bank, actually. I finished that in 2014. And ever since, I've just been working in public engagement and science communication professionally instead. Okay, so you are the editor for the magazine Popular Astronomy. So tell us a bit about that. What sort of things do you cover? So Popular Astronomy is the magazine of the Society for Popular Astronomy, which is just an amateur society that you can pay membership for and you get a bi-monthly magazine as well as some perks for um, meetings in London and such like. 
So yes, we cover a lot of things in Pop Astro, as we call it for short. So there's just news blasts from interesting things that have happened in the news in the past two months. We also have up to four feature articles covering a particular astronomical or space science topic. But there's also regular features as well, like, you know, backyard stargazing, got a section for young astronomers, phases of the moon for that month and things like this. So it's, it's a wide range of things. So it kind of appeals to all ages and professional levels. How did you actually get into science communication? I mean, obviously, we run a podcast here, and we're all very keen on chatting to people. But what's your backstory with how you've ended up telling people about lungs, I think it is, that you uh, <laughs> were telling me you now do? Yeah, my story's a little bit convoluted, we can say. So I did part of my PhD at ESO in Chile, European Southern Observatory. And when I finished that, I started working as an unpaid associate for the education and public outreach department. So it was not so much the public outreach, but a lot of the communications for the website and such. So writing a lot of content for them. But also during this time, I had a friend who also works for Pop Astro, actually, Mandy Bailey, who got me in touch with a guy who at the time was running a space news website, who was looking for writers at the time. So I got in touch with him. He started giving me regular articles. And from then I started getting contacts for magazines like Astronomy Now. And I would just send a pitch for an interesting article. They'd pick it up. I'd write it. And obviously once you're on these people's radars, it's a lot easier to then get continuing work. So that was Chile. So I left Chile in 2015 and moved to Edinburgh, where I was working here and there in different roles. I was at the Royal Observatory of Edinburgh for 10 months in a public engagement role, but still doing sort of science writing freelance on the side. And then when that role finished, because that was just maternity cover, I basically just fell in love with Edinburgh, didn't want to move, was kind of sick of the astronomer lifestyle of upping roots and moving every couple of years. Wanted to stay in one place, so I said, okay, maybe I'd rather change fields than actually leave the city. So that's when this job came up at the University of Edinburgh. So it's still science communication, still public engagement, but now for a biomedical research group, as you were saying, all about lungs. (laughs) And it's a really interesting group because it's a proper interdisciplinary group of scientists so physicists biologists chemists working directly with clinicians in the hospital in edinburgh to develop a new diagnostic technology to be used at the bedside in intensive care units okay i'm just going to completely derail from the um, astronomy theme and just ask you a little bit about what it is this diagnostic technology is because you were telling me about it earlier and it's really cool and i just kind of want to share it yeah no that's great well it's actually when i first joined proteus it's the name of the team after there's a film called The Fantastic Voyage from the 70s where they shrink themselves and enter into a man's body to clear a blood clot in a little ship and the little ship is called Proteus. So the group's kind of named after that because they're miniaturising optical fibres to be inserted into the lung basically and they're developing the technology completely from scratch. So the fibre is actually a fibre bundle made up of an imaging fibre. So just, you know, as you would in astronomy which is kind of, you know, miniaturised looking down instead of up a delivery fibre for delivering what they call chemical smart probes and I'll talk about them in a second and the third one is a sensing fibre which detects oxygen levels and pH in the lung as well. So the cool thing about this system with the the smart probes is that it injects like I say or sprays this liquid into the lungs which attach to bacteria in the deepest parts of the lungs. This makes the bacteria fluoresce or glow and then depending on how they glow and like the lifetime of the glow we can then detect what type of bacteria it is and then know how to treat it accordingly with antibiotics and the cool thing is is that all that is done within 60 seconds of switching on the system at the bedside. Excellent. Are, are there astronomers aside from yourself that are involved in this because you, you were talking about how this is sort of inverted astronomical technology as well. Is there anyone that has gone from this field of astronomy into doing the research? 
Yeah, actually, um, I'm potentially the third. So in Proteus, there was a lovely Italian guy called Ettore, who was before me, actually. And he worked on radio interferometry, so did a lot of work at VLTI, the Very Large Telescope Interferometry in Chile. So we nearly crossed paths, actually. And then there's a physicist called Rob Thompson, who's one of the PIs for Proteus, who was actually at this conference this week, actually, talking about something called photonics that they use as part of Proteus, which is kind of beyond my knowledge level, (laughs) what he did present about it this week. So, yeah, I'm not the only astronomer actually involved in this. If you're a PhD student listening to this, Amy is a perfect example of what else you can do. There is a life outside of physics. Are you glad that you left astrophysics, or is that something that perhaps you would have liked to stay in? I'm always intrigued as to whether or not people leave out of choice and then regret it or want to come back would you consider coming back in terms of research no i think i pretty much knew from day one of my phd that i wasn't cut out for research and i think that's acceptable i think that's fine i think people need to acknowledge that it is okay to not be an academic i think there's such a stigma attached to that like you seem to be a failure of some sort if you don't go on to do postdocs and stuff and whatever and that's just not true in terms of astronomy public engagement I did admittedly stop that just out of circumstance, just because of lack of jobs, because like I say, I wanted to stay in one place, which makes it obviously a lot more difficult to find a position if they're filled. But I, yeah, I love my current job. It's actually nice to learn something new and kind of flex the brain cells a little bit more because it's all transferable skills. I know this is what your teachers bang on about at school and whatever else, but it is true. You know, you can easily pick up everything that you've learned from astronomy and transfer it to another field. And although it's a bit scary to start off with, like I was trying to desperately remember my A-level biology and chemistry, actually you ease into it and you realise that, you know, academic speak is essentially the same across all fields. And you just look for the experience of being able to talk to the public. So no, currently no regrets. Excellent. I'm going to wrap up now, but if any of our listeners are wanting to start getting involved in science communication or anything like that, is there any advice you would give to them? Any routes down which they could go perhaps? depends on what kind of science communication certainly for writing it sounds obvious but you just need to write (laughs) and write a lot so don't be scared to email people with unsolicited emails saying i've got this idea for a story can i explain it to you because that's exactly what i do with astronomy now they do accept just emails from anybody who have stories so just send them a pitch explain your idea and if they like it they'll get back to you and it'll just go from there are you accepting any new writers for popular astronomy or anything like that Absolutely, yes. I'm definitely looking for new writers. This is my first month as being the editor, so it's kind of time for a bit of a refresh and a bit of, bit of change. So yes, if you want to write some either short news stories, which are up to 500 words, or feature articles, which are up to 2,000 words, then yeah, sure, do get in touch. You can email me at editor at popastro.com. Fantastic. Thank you very much for your time, Amy. I will let you go now, because I think you are currently running a stand upstairs, <laughs> and I've stolen you away from it. In this third interview, uh, Emma's speaking to an old friend of the Jodcast, uh, Professor Chris Lintot, who I think now has just broken the record again for the number of interviews. I think he's now on eight. Wow. Um, though they, he, they may well correct me on that figure in the interview. I'm not listening to it right now. he's kind of up there on his own a bit. Yeah, though, isn't he? very much. <laughs> um, but yeah, they're talking about um, the current and future work of the Zooniverse. I'm here with Professor Chris Lintot, and first of all, welcome back to the Jodcast. I believe this is the eighth time or sometime thereabouts that we've chatted to you, but the last time I think was in 2016, so definitely overdue a catch-up. We're currently at EWAS, the European Week of Astronomy and Space Science, held in conjunction with the National Astronomy Meeting, uh, NAM, which is taking place in Liverpool at the moment. 
First of all, I guess, what are you up to here at, uh, at the conference? I'm having a very lazy week, mostly. I've got to the point where my students are presenting, and several of them have given good talks and have posters up, so I am enjoying watching them, talking to people, keeping an eye on the beautiful Liverpool weather out there. It was sunny for about 30 seconds earlier, and it's now raining prettily. But yeah, no, it's great to be in a place like this where you have a village of astronomers that you can talk to about projects that might happen, that will happen, that might never happen, and catch up. So you mentioned that some of your students are here presenting. What kind of work have they been doing? I think the the stuff that I'm finding most exciting is a foray into machine learning. This is mostly uh, with a PhD student called Mike Wormsley, who gave a talk yesterday. Um, It's a bit strange for me to be involved in machine learning. I mostly do citizen science, getting volunteers to look at galaxies or try and discover planets or or inspect astronomical data. And those projects exist because the machines aren't good enough. But everyone knows that machine learning is hardly out of the news, it's getting better. And so we're trying to explore how you can best combine the thoughts of astronomers and the thoughts of, of volunteers on the Zooniverse website with machines, the idea being that the machines can do the, the drudge work, really, can get rid of things that you expect, and then people can pay attention to the unusual stuff. Uh, but it turns out to be quite a subtle problem for machine learning to work. A lot of the modern techniques rely on loads of training data. So um, you know, Facebook is good at recognizing the places in your photos, because we've all spent 10 years or more uploading pictures to Facebook and telling it where they are. In astronomy, we're almost unique that we're interested in really rare stuff. So you can do a big survey of the sky and still care a lot about a type of galaxy that only appears 10 times. And so Mike's work has been looking at that using the example of low-surface brightness galaxies or low-surface brightness features, so galaxies that have faint remnants around them. And his challenge is that normally you're working for Google or something, you want a new machine learning problem, you go and set up a training set of 2 million expert classifications. Mike had 140. And so that makes you think differently about the classifications, but it also makes you think differently about the machines. And hopefully this will be part of what astronomers are doing for the next 10 years or so. Really, that sounds really interesting. So that's one thing going on in the, the world of the Zooniverse. How is everything else going? It seems like it's going from strength to strength. Yes, we're, we're very busy. We built, I guess, around the time that I talked to Jogcast last, we just released our project Builder. So it's now very easy for scientists to create a Zooniverse project. Instead of coming to us and us doing the web development, people can do their own thing. And that's meant that we've been more experimental and people have been able to come along and do things. I'm very excited. I'll give you a sneak preview of a project that will probably launch in the next couple of weeks with with a student called Tim Lingard from Portsmouth's leading on this one, where we want people to take a really close look at a few thousand galaxies. So normally in Galaxy Zoo, project that started it all, we ask people, are there spiral arms here? Is there a bulge at the centre? And you click buttons to tell us the answer. We've now got to the point where we need to know where the spiral arms are. So we want to look at the properties of parts of galaxies, not just the galaxy. So Tim's built a little tool that lives in the web browser, sits on top of the Zooniverse infrastructure, that will let you model your galaxy. So you can choose to add a disk, and then you can add a bulge at the centre, you can add some spiral arms, you can make them more or less prominent. And it's quite addictive. You could spend uh, a good few minutes making the perfect model of your galaxy. And what we can do with that is understand how the different bits of the galaxy relate to each other. So some of the stuff I'm excited about doing with that project is really simple. To give you an example, people have often looked at what are called colour gradients, so how the colour of a galaxy changes as you travel from the centre to the edge. 
But those results are a bit confusing. If you take a spiral galaxy like the Milky Way and you travel from the center to the edge, what actually happens is that you pass through various spiral arms. And so all you detect with your color gradient are the blue spiral arms where lots of young stars are forming. So what we want to do with Tim's results, the help of Zooniverse volunteers and Jogcast listeners and everyone else, is trace round the spiral arms. So to travel from the center of the galaxy to the outside, following the spiral arm, and look at how properties change along the spiral arm. And no one's been able to do that because no one's had decent models of lots of galaxies. And so this is a new step for us. It's something we've done once before, but getting people to model data, not just look at it and not just answer questions about it, but create a model that we can use. Okay, brilliant. Um, so it sounds like, yeah, that the Zooniverse world and uh, all of that stuff is uh, going really well. Do you get the time to do any other research other than all of that? Well, most of my research uses the Zooniverse, so, so I'm in, in, embedded in the data, but um, mostly the research is done by the students and postdocs. We're very lucky that we have great people working with us. Um, I do dabble a bit. I've got a couple of side projects. There's an old project on blue ellipticals, so elliptical galaxies that are just forming stars that I'm supposed to be finishing off, so maybe that's ne- next week's problem. You told me just before the interview that you've been going to a lot of the exoplanet talks here at the conference. Has there been anything in particular that's piqued your interest at all? I I think one of the things that's happened just in the last couple of years is how serious exoplanet science has got. Particularly in the UK, we've got very good here at trying to understand what these planets are like. So I think if you came to NAM or indeed to EWAS, either of these conferences a few years ago, I think the talks would have been about how to discover planets um, how to find them in the noise, what types of planet exist in terms of size. Now you go to those talks and they're about models of the atmosphere. So there's a great talk from Hannah Wakeford, who incidentally has a podcast, Exocast, who, which people should listen to, but after they finish listening to the Jogcast and all the Jogcast archive and um, maybe all my interviews as well. Anyway, so, so people are doing modelling of atmospheres, not just so does the planet have clouds? Does it have molecules in its atmosphere? Can we detect the those molecules. Um, if you're talking about the planet itself, what's the interior like? Never mind whether it's rocky or gaseous. What sort of planet are we dealing with? And there's a huge amount of effort being put in to try uh, and understand how those things come together because we can see that as we build the extremely large telescope that people are working on or the new ESA mission, Ariel, if we're going to have any hope of making use of that data. We need this kind of detailed modelling. So there's an awful lot of people doing an awful lot of hard work, and I very much enjoyed listening to the fruits of it. One of the very exciting things in, in Experts is just from the last week or so is this selection of Ariel, which is ESA's new exoplanet mission, but it's a UK-led mission by Giovanna Tintinetti and her team at UCL. And so it's brilliant that we've got a UK-led ESA mission. Um, it's brilliant that they've fought their way through to get picked, And it's a dedicated space mission that will launch in about a decade's time to look at the atmospheres of planets. It's also not quite controversial, but people are really, now it's real. People are digging into these estimates of what it will find. I think it's going to be fascinating to see that project develop over the next 10 years. So how will that project compare to, for example, the Kepler mission, I think, is one of the most famous ones for exoplanet study? So Kepler was a discovery mission. So Kepler's aim was to find out how many planets and of what size exist in the galaxy. And it's done that. We've got a good idea now. Um, But now we know that exoplanets are common. You'd never launch Kepler. Kepler stared at a region of the sky with no bright stars because we thought exoplanets might be rare. And so you have to look at many stars. Actually, we now know they're everywhere, more or less. 
And so there are a couple of missions coming up, one by NASA called TESS, which is due to launch in a couple of weeks. It's a European one called Plato, and they're going to do the planet discovery around nearby bright stars. And those planets are the ones that we'll be able to follow up. And then Ariel is the first of the next generation where, okay, it's not a planet discovery mission. We know where the planets are. Ariel is going to try and tell us what their atmospheres are like and give us some of the data that we need to do that. So it's classic. In some ways, it's for once, it's the textbook scientific method. We find out what's out there, then we get more information about it, and then we try and understand it and compare it to our own solar system. One very exciting thing I was just talking to somebody about was that we've got to the point where they're taking the, the climate model developed for Earth by the Met Office and using it to try and model some of these exoplanets. Uh, as well as looking at Mars and other planets. So I love the fact that we're using the same tools that we use to understand the Earth on these very exotic worlds. It's really exciting. Is there any Zooniverse project that does relate to exoplanets? Yeah, well, we've had a project for a long while called Planet Hunters that looked at Kepler data. It discovered the first planet around four-star system, for example. More recently, we've had a project called Exoplanet Explorers, which found this amazing system. K2138 is the number, but it's a... A five-planet system, and the planets are all in resonance, so they're all very close to their star, but for every three times the first planet goes around, the next one goes around twice. For every three times that goes around, the next one goes around twice, uh, and so on out. So you've got these five planets in this resonant chain. And what's exciting about that is that these things, when they formed, there are natural ways to get them to form in this very deliberate pattern. It looks like they've been arranged, but it's just an effect of friction in the disk from which they form. But planets like these, which are very close to their star, must have formed a long way out and moved in. And what this tells us, the fact they're still in this beautiful pattern, tells us that they moved in in a nice, calm, regular fashion. Not like the astronomers going to coffee about half an hour ago, but there's a nice orderly line of well-behaved planets. So it tells you that in that system, they've never had a chaotic orbit. The really exciting thing, well, the icing on the cake, really, is that we've got these five planets. Then there's a gap, there's no planet. Then there's a gap, there's no planet. There are hints in the data that there's another planet. There's a sixth planet out there, still in the chain, but with a couple of gaps. And we should know this week whether that's true. We've just had Spitzer, the space telescope, look, because we think this outer planet should now just have gone across the face of the star. And so maybe we now know there's a sixth planet, but we're waiting for the data to arrive. That's really exciting. And hopefully by the time this interview goes out, then we might know if that is the case or not. I will let you know. Brilliant. Thank you. So what have you got planned coming up in the next year or so? Any future projects that you're well currently involved in or excited to be getting involved in? I'm very excited. We're going to do a planet hunting project for TESS, so this next NASA spacecraft. That data will hopefully flow straight onto the Zooniverse. The data's open, so everyone in the world can have a look for planets at the same time. So I'm very excited about that. I've recruited a student, so I don't have to do all the thinking myself. So that's very, very exciting. I'm also thinking a lot about Sky at Night. My other side of my life is, is this, the TV thing and, and making sure we do great programs. We've got a program coming up about Gaia, which has its first data release, or its second data release, but the first big data release from this, this spacecraft that's been mapping the nearest billion stars to, to the sun. And we're going to try in a week after that data release to find as many scientists as we can who've already got results. So it's, it's probably a terrible idea for a TV program, but it's going to be a lot of fun to make. And that will be, I guess, May's Sky at Night. Brilliant. Well, I look forward to that. I think that's all that I have to ask you. But thank you again for joining us. And hopefully, see well, hear from you again soon on the Jodcast. I can't imagine it will be too long before we speak to you again. So thanks very much. Thank you. I'll be back as soon as I can. 
Okay, we now have uh, Josh with another Jodcast friend, Dr. Matt Taylor, to take a look back on the Rosetta mission. Hello, I'm here at EWAS in Liverpool with Matt Taylor, who is the project scientist for the ESA Rosetta mission. I believe we've had you on before. I believe so. (laughs) (laughs) But for those that haven't met you or listened to you before, um, do you want to tell us quickly a little bit about yourself and your background? Yeah, sure. I'm a space plasma physicist, basically, so I'm a little out of place here because I normally focus more in the heliosphere and planetary aspects. My job in the European Space Agency as a project scientist is to be the liaison between ESA and the scientific community to ensure that the scientific community gets the science that they want from the missions. And I've been involved and still am involved in the Rosetta mission. So for just sort of background story on the Rosetta mission, I believe it was launched in 2007 and then... Oh, 2004. 2004? Yeah, yeah. And then... Yeah, so basically it was a mission to Comet 67P, Shumov-Gerasimenko, uh, which is a Jupiter-class comet, so it's got an orbit going out to, to Jupiter. We launched in 2004 and took 10 years to get to the comet because it's difficult to go deep space. And yeah, the last, let's say, probably three years, well, since 2014 when we arrived at the comet, were uh, exciting and stressful. And I'm, I think I took the last year. So we, the mission mission ended in 2016. So I, I think I took 2017 to recover, and, and many of us did recover, hopefully, from from the uh, the roller coaster ride that it was. So operations went ahead and we did all of the stuff that we wanted to do and more. And some things didn't go right, some things went right, some things uh, were unexpected, some things were expected. And now we're in the process of ensuring that all the data is secured away in the archive so anyone can look at the data, anyone can do the science that was the reason that we sent Rosetta to this comet. Okay, so what was that science? What, what were the main scientific objectives? Well, this was to, to characterise this comet, to really get an, un, an understanding of how comets work, because all previous missions to comets have been flybys, very quick little snapshots, and then you go from quite great distance. Rosetta was designed way back in the 80s, in fact, when Giotto was flying past Comet Halley. Already then it was identified that this was the thing we needed to do. We needed to sit next to a comet, because a comet's a very really active object when it's close to the sun it's very active so the ice within it sublimates and you get this the formation of these fantastic dust and gas tails when it goes further away it becomes rather inert we wanted to see how that process worked so that's what the investigation was really focused on and well let me let me step back a bit the comets are kind of uh, alongside the other small bodies of the solar system, my asteroids, are like the leftover bits of the formation of the solar system. So looking at those gives you an idea of what went into the solar system at the beginning. So I would say some of the great stuff that's come out of Rosetta is at the, the, the molecular level, like the stuff that's come off, some of the gases indicate, well, constrain the formation mechanisms of, of the solar system itself. So one example I'll jump straight with is the discovery of molecular oxygen on the comet or within the comet which was a massive surprise because oxygen is a very friendly molecule. It likes to get with other molecules. Finding oxygen by itself, it's only possible to be there under certain situations. And you extrapolate backwards and it then constrains how the comet was put together, the temperature of the the dust and gas cloud that was there before the sun was formed. So there's stuff in the comet that predates the formation of the sun itself. So... That I find quite mind-blowing. So it's really giving you this view back into the beginning of the solar system and what, what the situation was like there. So does this have implications on, say, for instance, the origins of water on Earth? Or well, that's another another one of the things that we were looking at at uh, uh, 67P, where you have this, this view. Well, we believe that the 
water on Earth, or the Earth was devoid of water in, in, in the early phases, something must have brought that back. And we were looking at asteroids and comets as maybe being the most viable delivery mechanism. From what we found with Rosetta and 67P, the water on the comet was nothing like that that we find on Earth. How so? so? We would look at the ratio of uh, heavy water or deuterium to hydrogen. And doing that comparison shows that for this particular comet, and we, we group that with other comets, it's very different. It suggests that that measurement or that ratio, um, that flavour of water, suggests that the comet was formed very, very far away from, from the sun. So going back to the you know, delivery of water question, it suggests that comets aren't really a major delivery mechanism. We don't believe they are. However, there are other things that we found on the comet, in particular some of the noble gases. There's a, a set of xenon isotopes that we can really look at and, and use as a kind of tracer and a marker. And the stuff that we find on the comet is very similar to that of the atmosphere of the Earth. So you can say, well, maybe water wasn't delivered, or that much water, but there are other things that were delivered that could have supplied a significant amount of the Earth's atmosphere. Um, and then when you find glycine, so a, a precursor of proteins, on the comet as well, maybe comets delivered some of the more um, complex stuff that then went on to become life. So they're a way of potentially delivering at the building blocks of life to our early Earth. Okay, so and, and these comets are definitely from within our solar system. There's no, there's no way that they could be sort of a, a moi-moi type. Well, no, not, no, not, well, actually so, some of the other discoveries we've been looking at, really, the comet is so unsolar-like. When you look at all of these, so, uh, the sulfur, the silicon, the, the xenon, and all, they don't look solar, but it also then links to, there are some other observations of, I've forgotten the name of the constellation now, sorry, my brain's gone, but... Um, been a but, long week yeah yeah <laughs> but looking when we, and so this is the thing you can you can take the, the rosetta our solar system uh, observations and then compare them to other planetary or, or, or young star systems and we have made observations we the, the community of these uh, proto-solar or protostellar protoplanetary nebula and you have this very irregular mix of dust and gas around early in early systems and that might be what happened in our solar system it was a wasn't a nice homogenized mix it was all over the place it was lumpy some dust was of a certain size in one part of the solar system and different in another part and that's well that's the nature of science i guess that what we're finding is that it isn't isn't as easy as we thought it was or as simple the formation processes and that there was a bit of a, a weird mix of stuff. So going back, to, right, we don't think that this is an alien object, but it's indicating that some of the, the more simple ideas of how the solar system formed need to be rethought. And you can actually connect these measurements and these observations to other planetary systems as well. So that's, that's the broad, broad base impact of uh, Rosetta, is that you've got in situ in the solar system that you can compare to other astronomical observations as well, which is nice. Okay, I'm going to ask you about the what I think was, for the community at least, the most nerve-wracking part of the mission, mm -hmm. which was the bounce. Right. Um, yes. How how did that happen? How did it feel? Um, <laughs> well, <laughs> um, it's a long time ago now, but I, I have to say, trying to stay positive through that entire week was very difficult, but we were. It was kind of there was a feeling that it was going to work anyway. The reason uh, Phil I didn't stay where it was supposed to, you can go in different directions here, um, <laughs> but it, it was good that it didn't. Well, one thing, yeah, I'd say that it's good that it didn't remain where we targeted because where we ended up was actually much more interesting from a scientific point of view. When we eventually found the lander and took the, that final image in September, 
there was no dust on it, so it's giving us another indication of the weirdness of this cometary object, that some places had loads of dust delivered, other places didn't have any. There was no dust back full. In fact, if Philae had stayed where it was, there's a high likelihood that it would have got completely covered with dust back full. Right, okay, so yeah, it was nerve-wracking. We had three ways of securing ourselves to the comet. There was a gas thruster on the top of the spacecraft to try and push it down whilst it was firing harpoons, and he had some mechanical eye screws as well. We knew the night before that the gas thruster wasn't going to work, but we thought, well, we'll deliver it anyway, given this set of criteria, and the harpoons will stop it from disappearing back into the uh, ether, as it were, space. The harpoons didn't work, and so that's why we got the bounce. Luckily, some of the, the mechanics of, of the system reduced the momentum enough to stop it from flying off completely, but we skipped about a kilometre across the surface of the comet. The reason we believe the harpoons didn't work was if you go out, you get some fireworks, and you leave them outside or, you know, in your garden for 10 years uh, and then try and light them, <laughs> they might not go off. So we think what it was is the long space voyage uh, for 10 years affected the pyrotechnics that's effectively what it was and, and there was already some investigation just prior to the landing in the pyrotechnics and the fuse mechanism to try and see what needed to be done because we had some ground-based stuff that we'd left on the ground to test and it looked like that's probably what happened it was just basically a damp powder for want of a better phrase if the fuse didn't trigger properly but as i was saying and I'm waving my hands a lot about we ended up somewhere much more rich, I think. And it just added to the story that was Rosetta, the fact that we had this, that the lander was stuck in a ditch. We didn't get an image until the month before we ended the whole mission. And that ubiquitous image that I received on a, on a Sunday night from one of my colleagues and Chechi Tubiana, who works on the camera team, she, she found that. She was pouring over the data and then there's this the, the fantastic story of her finding it. They're rushing into work at MPS and... That percolation of that information within the team, me getting it on my phone in the evening and waking my wife up and going, they found it, and then getting so excited because we'd been looking for it for that long. And that, that is the only image that we got because it was, it was a crazy time when we were spiraling down towards the comet at the end of September 2016. The gravity of that object is so weird that we had a, a three-day fixed orbit and depending how we were overflying through uh, our perisent was dropping down to about two kilometers from the surface it would affect the orbit period by up to 20 hours in one direction. So we had to correct that. So we tried to stay as close to three days orbit period as possible because I think at the time it was something like half an hour one-way light time. We were doing everything ahead of time, programming our operations ahead of time. So to have a time shift in, in that meant that you'd be taking an image or a, a measurement at the wrong time and wrong place. So that's why we had to fix it like that. That's why it's actually so challenging to get that image when I give my presentation, I show, I think, an orbit before that image that we got. We were offset. This is rubbish for a, for a podcast. <laughs> we but might cut this. There's we a might square. <laughs> if, if this is your image and you're looking in the middle, we were completely off-center by a, a good few degrees because of this shifting. And then there was a frame about 20 seconds after, and it was when the comet had rotated a little bit and the spacecraft had moved, and you could actually see the lander legs sticking above the horizon, as it were, but you couldn't still, you couldn't say that's definitely a lander. Nobody would believe that. Then we got that one. It's nothing but the lander. And then that was it. We, we weren't able to capture another image for, for various reasons. So, yeah, there's, again, it's, it just adds to that 
narrative that, that, that was Rosetta. It's so crazy. did you get all the data back down from Philae yeah, now? Yeah, from Philae we got, we got everything that we expected and from Rosetta we got everything that we expected and that's the key, that's the ongoing activity. So yeah, we finished in 2016 but we are continuing our activities with Anissa at least up until September next year. The teams out in the community are still working on this getting the data in the archive as I said at the beginning so that everyone can use this data and it's it's been a long and difficult task because it's difficult data to get processed and calibrated in a really good way. Okay so just finally looking beyond Rosetta have you got anything plans ESA wise or have you got any missions that you're particularly looking forward to seeing? Well, I mean, the big one for me is because I work at Estec in, in Nordwijk in the Netherlands and we have Bepi Colombo in-house and it's about to leave to go to the launch site at the end of this month. It's going to fly out in four Antonovs and a massive barge from Rotterdam as well. That to me, that's a cool mission, although, you know, it gets launched this year, but then it's going to take six or seven years to get to Mercury. That's a really nice looking spacecraft, so that, I'm quite excited about that. So that's a Mercury lander? No, it's a Mercury orbiter. There's two spacecraft. One's a magnetospheric type mission. One's more of a a planetary mission. And it's a collaboration with the Japanese Space Agency as well, which adds, I think, an extra dimension to this. It's fantastic to have this international collaboration because that's what it's all about. Okay, so that's, from from an ESA perspective, what I'm interested in. But I'm I'm not involved in that mission. I'm waiting for management to give me something to do. And, And we see... Well, we know in the ne- within the next month they're going to down-select some missions for study at the M-class level. And there might what be is some- that? What's so M-class? Right, sorry. you've got M, L, S, but they're all different cost caps for different missions. So Bepi Colombo is more like an L-class. Solar Orbiter is an M-class mission. So they're about five, six hundred million is an M-class budget, roughly, depending on which call it was. So that kind of size mission is there'll be a call for a mission, what was the M5 then? We just had the M4 down selection, so the Ariel mission was selected, which is going to characterise exoplanet atmospheres. As I say, so next month, May time, we'll find out some more studies that will go be put in for about two years and I might be put on if there's a suitable mission I might be involved in one of those. Uh, Gunter Hassinger just gave a presentation here at EWAS and also spoke about F-class missions which are smaller ones but what they'll try and do is they'll add them to the launch of these M-class missions to get a launch for free so there might be some interesting possibilities there and he was mentioning the possibility of this being focused on maybe the planetary area so the, the planetary science so there's some stuff for me to do and keep me busy I think. All sounds very exciting. Matt Taylor, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for listening to me warble on after the conference dinner as well. (laughs) Now Emma interviews Dr Claire Burke and Maisie Rashman about their recent work on applying astronomical techniques to animal conservation. I'm here with Dr Claire Burke and Maisie Rashman from the Astrophysics Research Institute, Liverpool John Moores University, and we're here at EWAS. So welcome, thank you for agreeing to do a Jodcast interview with us. I was in your talk yesterday about your work. It's incredibly interesting and I feel like you're the best person to sum up what you've been doing. So I will hand over to you to give us uh, an overview, I guess, of your research. We're astronomers and we've been working with conservation ecologists to help save endangered animals and catch poachers. How we do this is using drones with thermal infrared cameras attached. And when we look at animals with thermal infrared footage, we're looking at their body heat and they glow. And this kind of glow is the same kind of glow that stars and galaxies in space have. So that means that we can use techniques and software that we've been using in astronomy for decades to automatically detect the animals. Once we've detected them, it turns out that every different species of animal has a unique thermal fingerprint. And we can use this to tell automatically if we're looking at elephants or rhinos or humans or monkeys or anything else by applying a machine learning algorithm. 
So I guess the big question is, how did you get into this from doing astrophysics? The opportunity to apply my knowledge and skills that I've picked up in astrophysics to a real world problem down here on Earth was really, really exciting. And when I saw a job advert for using drones and astronomy to, to help save endangered animals, I just leapt at the chance. How did this cross-disciplinary collaboration come about between you and your colleagues? So this collaboration genuinely came about because an astronomer and ecologist lived next door to each other. And one day they were having a chat over the back fence. And the ecologist was telling the astronomer about how they like to use drones to do conservation and how they wanted to use thermal cameras to look at the animals because the animals stand out really brightly in the thermal imaging. But he said that they were having a bit of trouble understanding the data, understanding what they were seeing in the footage. And the astronomer says, well, we've been using infrared data in astronomy for decades. We've got loads of tools to help deal with this. And that was how the collaboration was born. What is it that you both have been doing day to day on this project? What is your typical day working on this? So I've mostly worked so far on actually building up our algorithm. So I've been looking at how astronomy software finds stars and galaxies in data and applying the same principles to animals. So daily day to day tasks tend to be that I'll fire up my computer I'll write a bit of code, I'll test it on our data, and also at the same time I'm looking at parameterizing our cameras to make sure that we're getting the best data as possible so we can put that into our algorithm and get really good results out. A lot of what I do day to day is sort of understanding how the environment affects what we can and can't see with the camera. Because obviously the weather affects whether or not we can fly the drone at all. But if it's a very hot and humid environment, then a lot of the thermal radiation from the animals will be absorbed before it even gets to the camera. So I've been working on trying to understand and parameterize that so we can deal with it. Also, it turns out the ground can be a really big source of thermal infrared. As the sun comes up, the ground heats up with it. And in the middle of the day, the ground in, in warm countries in, say, Central Africa can be as warm as the animals are trying to look at. So we've been trying to optimise what time of day we fly the drone for one so that we can actually see the animals and if there's any kind of background subtraction we can do to get better data. So are there any particular animals that you've been looking at so far and what are your plans for this uh, into the future? So we've been working very closely locally with Nosley Safari and Chester Zoo to do long-term studies of their rhinos. So there's quite a few infants that are born every year and there's at least two at Chester Zoo and there's one currently at Nosley that we're able to do long-term studies as they grow up to see how rhino development affects the thermal profiles. We've also been able to go to Africa and see rhinos in the wild and take data of them. So we're very keen to have a look at large megafauna that are particularly vulnerable to things like poaching and habitat destruction. We actually did our first field test of the system. Last year in September, we went to South Africa to look for the riverine rabbit, which is the most endangered animal that you've never heard of. There's only about 200 of them in the wild. And we flew the drone in the desert. It's obviously a very difficult place to survey on foot. And with the drone, we were able to catch five sightings of the riverine rabbit. And being as it's only been seen about a thousand times in history, this was a really big success for us in showing that the drone could be used to track endangered animals. How do you know that you've seen a rabbit because, especially from a drone, do they all not just look like small, hot blobs? So we actually work on making sure that our drone flies at a height where our animals can appear quite uh, visible to us. So we want to be able to see the shapes and the contours of their body. So we were able to fly our drone quite low, between 50 and 20 metres. And that way in our data, we could definitely see the rabbit's ears and the rabbit's tails and its legs and things. Also, while we're training the algorithm, we have someone who's actually looking at the, the things that we're trying to see to make sure that we are actually seeing the things that we want and that we've got a definite label on all of our training data. So we know that that's a black rhino and the other one is a white rhino, for example. So is that just one person, a couple of people? Is, is there any scope for opening this out to citizen science, for example, doing something like uh, Galaxy Zoo does? So we're actually planning to use Galaxy Zoo because in order to 
for a machine learning algorithm to be able to tell the difference between different animals, we first need to train it on a training data set, which means that we will likely be setting up something where the general public can classify all the different animals that we've got data from so that we can train the machine learning algorithm to know what different types of animals are. Obviously, one of the main aims of this project is to use it for conservation and looking at endangered species. You mentioned it's been looking at rhinos. Is there any potential for this to get into the wrong hands, to be used as a tool for the poachers, dare I say it? So we actually have a lot of policies in place to make sure that Although we want our data to be accessible, we have to have people registered with us and registered with an institution or a conservation group so that we can ensure that the best possible people are actually using our software. Whereabouts would you like to see this work end up in the future? Everywhere. Everywhere. <laughs> At the end of the day, we would like this to be used all over the world for pretty much any animal that is warm-bodied. We want to make the system be as automatic as possible, so the drone will fly itself. All that the conservationist has to do is outline an area on a map, and the drone will survey that area. And it will all be automatic. So while the drone is flying, a user with a screen in their hand will just get a notification whenever it sees an animal, and it will say, this is a rhino, and it's at this location. This is an elephant, it's at that location. This is a man in the bush, he's over there. And then the game wardens can respond in real time and actually do something effective when it comes to poaching and conservation. We'd also hope to be able to modify this for search and rescue purposes. So we're working with the RNLI and some local rescue groups to actually work on making sure that not only can we detect poachers in data, we can also detect people and animals who are in distress in data too. We find things like we can see a lot further through fog than humans can or with RGB cameras. So we find that this is really great for marshy areas and areas of maybe low tide that quickly turns a high tide that could potentially put people in danger, but then be very hard to survey by search and rescue teams. Okay, brilliant. Thank you very much for joining me, uh, both of you, and I hope you enjoy the rest of the conference. Finally, Josh interviews Dr. Robert Massey from the Royal Astronomical Society to talk about their efforts to engage the world with astronomy. Hello, it's Josh here. I'm still at EWAS and I have now with me Robert Massey, who is the Deputy Executive Director, or as his LinkedIn says, Deputy CEO of the Royal Astronomical Society. So, hello Rob. Hi. So, for the benefit of our listeners, who may or may not have come across the RAS before, who are the RAS and what role do they play within the astronomical world? Well, the RAS is the largest astronomical society in the UK and also the second largest professional body of its type in the world after our American counterparts. So we have around 4,000 members. They have the title of Fellows for historical reasons and they are based predominantly in the UK but also we have a quarter to a third are in other countries. And they tend to be in a whole range of occupations. So we do represent professional astronomers and geophysicists actually as our kind of primary role. But we also have amateur astronomers, advanced amateurs, but I should stress people have made some kind of contribution to the field, as well as people like teachers, historians of science, science writers, and a lot of people actually who got a PhD in astronomy, were in the field, and then moved out into another area of the economy and industry and so on, and they have a continuing infinity. And actually we see those people as very important because they are linked to the wider world and they're, they're advocates for our work. Okay, so you've been involved with the RAS for a very long time, I think. Um, how, how long exactly is that? And well, like, I, what's yeah, your favourite thing that you've actually <laughs> I, done I, in that I've time? I've worked for the RAS for about 12 years, I think, something like that. Yeah, nearly 12 years. And I started off part-time, actually. It was a solely doing press and policy officer work, and I was moved into the deputy CEO role in 2010. So I've been doing that now for eight years, which is also quite a long time. 
and I'm there to do things like be an advocate for the science in various forms. Now, that actually means doing interviews on the science sometimes. It means promoting it to the media. So that's why we've been issuing a whole host of press releases this week at EWAS. And it also means doing things like talking to elected politicians, which is also something we've been doing this week as well. So that's kind of a flavor of it. But we're there as well to do things like commission research. So we presented a demographic survey this week, which kind of goes through the characteristics of different astronomers because, or the astronomy community as a whole, because we want to understand how that breaks down. I mean, we're well aware of the fact there aren't enough women in science, for example, particularly in the physical sciences. Astronomy is no exception. It's a little bit better than average in physics, but very good compared to the population as a whole. So that sort of work, for example, is the kind of thing we do. We're also very interested in the impact of Brexit and the UK's withdrawal from the European Union because we want to see what happens to the science base as a result. We're trying to understand it. We are not very positive about it at the moment, it's fair to say, because we think we'll lose a lot of funding and also because it sends probably the wrong signal to those international networks that we're so connected to at the moment. And we want to try and put out the message it's essential to remain embedded in those. Whatever happens with our uh, direct relationship with the EU, we need to make sure that we're still in those collaborations, that UK science is still doing great things. That's why this meeting is so important, actually. In terms of... uh, So I was in your presentation about gender diversity and things. And is there anything the RAS is doing directly to help combat it or are they just stat collecting well i mean i mean stat collecting is an important thing to do because we're a small organization if there's one thing we do well i think it's that because nobody else is doing it but we do use it obviously to shape our work as well so we have a small public engagement program and my colleague shia kalani and lucinda offer work on that and they are doing that work based on the results of surveys like that so we know that you know for example in this survey we discovered there is very low proportion of disabled astronomers so it's really important to us now i think that we start to work out ways in which we can engage people who are disabled to persuade them this is a career for them that would be the kind of thing so it's not just about just getting the data and saying oh everything's terrible no what we want to do is try and improve the situation and and, you know it's not it's not a simple matter i mean there are all kinds of wider influences but if we want to bring the broadest possible range of people into the field we have to start somewhere you know we have to get the data we have to understand the issue and we have to then make our plans accordingly okay fantastic so you haven't always been at the RAS you used to be a practicing astronomer I believe you actually were at Manchester um, which is where absolutely right yeah where we are based now Um, like (laughs) what was it that you did Um, well it was it was a long time ago now so it's 25 years ago that I was uh, more than that actually 26 27 years ago that I started my doctorate and I did a doctorate in looking at optical spectroscopy of the interstellar medium specifically the kind of kinematics of the Orion Nebula and what we now know are protoplanetary disks so we were looking at the outflows from those although we couldn't actually see them particularly well as objects we could measure the gas coming out of them material oh, coming out of them so this was all pre-ALMA and oh, oh yeah absolutely <laughs> I mean yeah it was even pre-Hubble some of it the first bit I mean the uh, because the Hubble telescope was launched in 1990 so it was before I started my doctorate but it didn't have the uh host our mission to fix the optics until a couple of years two or three years in and then actually we started to see the the remarkable pictures of the region we were studying i don't do astronomical research but i still do kind of keep my handle on the field so i'm trying to do writing you know i give popular talks and that kind of thing and and i used to be a teacher i uh, worked in the further education sector for a while and took a teaching qualification and so on and then i uh, worked in greenwich doing public outreach for eight years public engagement and that 
eventually became public astronomer for a couple of years before I moved to the RAS. I also dabbled in elected politics at the same time. So I was eight years as an elected councillor in South London, and then I got to a, a local cabinet role. So I was responsible for actually all the schools in the borough, about 78 schools and all the kind of children in care and all that kind of stuff. Actually, really enormously responsible role. Um, so it was really interesting to do all these things together and to move into what I'm doing now. Okay, from the perspective of, so I am a scientist and I don't really deal with the whole politics side of how the funding arises. Is the understanding of science within the political sphere particularly different from that of the public? I mean, we had a, we had a presentation on this yesterday. I think that, you know, politicians are supposed to to some extent of course they don't precisely because they've made a career choice but supposed to to some extent to reflect the public and I think that's that's reasonably the case so what you will find is there are some great enthusiasts some people who do have a scientific background although a small minority and others who have a particular affinity others who you know are much less interested and so there's a whole range of things I think one of the challenges for a community like ours is to explain our work it's an absolute priority that we ought to be able to go and explain it to anybody so you know if you're working on a sophisticated bit of radio astronomy you ought to be able to explain it to a 10 year old and then chances are you can explain it to an MP a journalist and so on but it's, it's really really important and even if you personally can't do it there ought to be someone in your group that can because I think there's a collective responsibility to do that you know and I would dearly love to see more parliamentary visits to facilities like Jodrell Bank just local MPs you know invite them along or whatever research establishment you're working in or university group get them in do a photo op with them they'll like it it's fairly easy publicity to do a photo op say with some kids visiting your group and at the same time you put the message out about how important our work is okay rob thank you very much it's a pleasure thank you thanks for those emma and me <laughs> I'm yeah, saying maybe that, i should have thanked yeah you. <laughs> no i'm saying that with no hint of irony um and now uh from engaging the world with astronomy to engaging you with astronomy, uh, here's Ian Morrison with this month's Night Sky. The Night Sky for May 2018. Well, to be honest, we don't have that many hours of darkness, so you've either got to stay up pretty late or get up very early. But if you do, there are some nice things to see. Well, as darkness falls, the constellation of Leo is setting towards the western horizon. And perhaps the most prominent star towards the south, a little bit east of south, is Arcturus, the brightest star in the constellation of Bootes. Higher up, in fact, is Ursa Major, with the plough and asterism most prominent. Rising over towards the eastern horizon, we have the first of the lovely summer constellations appearing. Vega, the brightest star in the constellation of Lyra is the first to arise. Slightly further round to the north is Deneb, the brightest star in the constellation of Cygnus. And just above the horizon is in fact the star Altair in the constellation of Aquarius. As we'll find many times in the next few months, Altair, Vega and Deneb make up what is called the Summer Triangle. It's a lovely part of the sky. So at the moment, it's not a particularly exciting sky. But if you do have a telescope, then the region just to the east of Leo 
in Virgo and Coma Berenices is called the realm of the galaxies. And there are many, many of the Messier objects or galaxies within that region. It's a lovely place to look at on a really dark, clear, transparent night with a biggish telescope. One can see quite a lot. Well, what about the planets? Well, let's start with Jupiter. Now, Jupiter reaches opposition on May the 8th, so it'll be visible all night. It shines at magnitude minus 2.5, has a disk some 44 arc seconds across. So it's equatorial bands, sometimes the great but reducing red spot can be seen along with four of the Galilean moons. Sadly, lying in Libra during the month, Jupiter is heading towards the southern part of the ecliptic and will only have an elevation of around 20 degrees when crossing the meridian. So atmospheric dispersion will thus hinder our view when observing it visually. And it might be worth considering the purchase of a ZWO atmospheric dispersion corrector, around £107, to counteract the effects of the atmosphere. Well, Saturn is now well into its new apparition. It rises at around midnight on the 1st of May and a couple of hours earlier by month's end. With an angular size of 17.5 arc seconds, increasing to 18.1 during the month, it climbs higher before dawn and so becomes easier to spot as the month progresses. Its brightness increases from plus 0.4 to plus 0.2 during the month. Now the rings were at their widest the latter part of last year, but still at around 25 degrees to the line of sight, are well open and span about two and a half times the size of Saturn's globe. Now Saturn is really down at the bottom end of the ecliptic. It lies in Sagittarius, close to the topmost star of the teapot, and will be best seen, obviously, just before dawn when it's highest above the horizon. But even then, it will only have an elevation of around 15 degrees. Again, atmospheric dispersion will hinder our view. Now Mercury. Mercury reached greatest elongation east from the Sun on April the 29th. And one might think at the beginning of May it would be well, well seen. The trouble is the ecliptic is at a very low angle to the horizon at this time of the year. So it will be not very far above the horizon, you'll probably be able to see it for the first week perhaps of May, but for the remainder of the month it'll lie too close to the Sun to be visible. Well Mars starts the month in Sagittarius and moves into Capricornus in mid-May. It's now a morning object, it rises at about 1.30 a.m. BST at the start of the month and a little after midnight by the end of May. Its brightness increases during the month from minus 0.4 to minus 0.2 magnitudes. And its angular size increases from 11.1 .1 to 15.1 arc seconds. So it now will be possible with a small telescope and the night of good seeing, that's when the atmosphere isn't too turbulent, to spot some of the details on the surface, such as Certis Major, and the polar caps on its salmon pink surface. It will only reach an elevation of some 10 degrees before dawn at the start of the month, only about 13 degrees by month's end. 
So again, the atmosphere is a problem. Well, finally, Venus. Venus, seen in the west after sunset, I think can't be missed. It shines brightly at magnitude minus 3.9 all month, with an angular size of 11.5, increasing to 13 arc seconds. But as it does so, the area of the surface that we see illuminated by the sun reduces, and the two effects compensate, which is why the brightness stays absolutely constant. It rises a little higher as the month progresses, initially setting around two hours after the sun, but increasing to about two and a half hours after the sun by the end of May. Venus starts the month in Taurus, not far above the Hyades cluster, but passes into Gemini on the 19th. Finally, what about some highlights? Well, obviously, May is a great month to view Jupiter. As I said, it's not going to be very high above the horizon when due south, crossing the meridian. On the night sky page, just put in night sky jodrell to find it, I've given a list of the times when the great red spot is crossing its meridian, so it'll be visible. And as you probably know, it's getting smaller. At the beginning of the last century, it spanned about 40,000 kilometers across, but now is only about 16,500 kilometers across, less than half the size. You used to be able to say that three Earths could fit within it, but now it's really only one. The shrinking rate appears to be accelerating, and observations indicate it's reducing in size by about 580 miles per year. Will it eventually disappear, I wonder? So, what else? Well, we do have a meteor shower. It's called the Eta Aquarids, and it peaks around May the 5th and 6th. Now, it's one of the finest meteor showers that can be seen from the Southern Hemisphere. But in the Northern Hemisphere, it may only be glimpsed in the pre-dawn sky in the southeast about 90 minutes before dawn. Sadly, this year the peak is when the waning gibbous moon is in the sky, so moonlight will certainly hinder our view, and only the brightest meteors will be seen. Again on May the 5th, before dawn, Saturn, the moon and Mars lie together in the southern sky. So Saturn is to the right of the waning gibbous moon I've just mentioned, with Mars down to its lower left. You might well need binoculars to penetrate the sky's pre-dawn brightness, but please don't use them after the sun has risen. Now, instead of being before dawn, let's go to after sunset. On May the 17th, you should easily spot, if clear, Venus, but much harder to spot will be a very thin crescent moon, just two days after new. And you'll probably need binoculars to pick that out. But again, don't use them until this time after the sun has set. I usually give an object to observe with a small telescope or a telescope on the moon. And this month, I've included the high genus Rill. It's best seen on May the 6th and 22nd, when the Terminator lies close. Virtually all the craters on the moon were caused by impact. 
but it's thought that the Hyginus crater that lies at the centre of the Hyginus rill may well be volcanic in origin. It's an 11 kilometre wide rimless pit. In contrast to impact craters which have raised rims and its close association with a rill of the same name associates it with internal lunar vents. I suspect the rill is the result of a lava tube and along it there are quite a number of craters where I think the roof has fallen in. Um, again on the night sky page in the lunar section I've actually included an image that I took in April. It's only two-thirds resolution but it still shows the Hyginus reel quite well and you can have a look and see what it looks like um, if you have a look. So some things to see it's always nice to observe the moon. When there isn't that much darkness, it does stand out. You can still look at it with a small telescope and just enjoy its vistas, even if it's not particularly dark. So I do hope you get some fun of observing the heavens during the upcoming month. Thanks for that, Ian. And for our Antipodean listeners, here's Jasmine Chinheims and Gabby Perez with the night sky where you are. Kia ora, Gabriela Perez here from Wellington, New Zealand. It's autumn here in the Southern Hemisphere and we can tell that from our chilly nights and the fallen leaves, but we can also see it in our skies. We can see the summer months sinking into the western horizon with Orion and his companions making way for all our winter constellations. Quite a nice time of year to see Orion and Scorpius on either sides of the sky, knowing that they're doomed to chase one another forever. So, of course, May is the last chance to glimpse some of the incredible objects in the treasure chest that is Orion. We have the bluish-white Rigel, a super-hot blue giant star about 40,000 times brighter than our own sun. It is Orion's alpha star, but sometimes it's outshone by Betelgeuse, a red giant variable star, which means that it will vary in its brightness or its magnitude. Betelgeuse is in the final stages of its life. This is when a star goes full supernova. If it does that within our own lifetimes, it'll be bright enough for us to see during the day, which would be pretty cool. Beside them lies Tautoru, or Orion's belt, and we can see the asterism of the pot, the base of the pot being made up of the belt. Now the pot is lying in its side at this time. The handle of the pot, the three faintest stars that we call the Sword of Orion, and the middle pot is M42. Um, if you're more familiar with the Messier objects, or the Great Orion Nebula, or the Great Orion Emission Nebula, it is the closest star-forming region to us here on Earth. And through a telescope, you can make up some of the nebulosity. But of the grey and green coming out of its centre, depicting quite a lot of oxygen within it. And you can also see the trapezium, which is a small star cluster. Now, the best time to view deep space objects, such as the Orion Nebula, will be towards the middle of the month as New Moon will be on the 15th of May, and um, on the 29th we will round off the month with the full moon. May is a great month for some planet viewing. At the top of the month we have Jupiter in the east, in the constellation of Libra, and it will be in our skies invisible all night long, outshining the bright Sirius. Sirius being the brightest true star in our sky, this binary star is pretty big, despite only um, its secondary component only being a white dwarf. And it's relatively close to us, only about, I think, 8.5 light years away. On the 9th of May, Jupiter will be in opposition, which means that it would be 
um, at its brightest, as its face will be fully illuminated by the sun, and it will be at its closest approach to the Earth. Um, in the middle of May, we will also have Silver Venus, setting 90 minutes after the sun in the northwest, and once again, Venus will become our evening star. Now you can see some fainter planets as well, but not too faint. We have Saturn and Mars, and they will be in our sky um, in the constellation of Sagittarius. So rising in the east just before Sagittarius is, of course, Scorpius. Here in New Zealand, we call it the fishhook of Maui. Maui, the warrior who fished up our north island from the ocean with this hook. And he also lassoed our sun, so he dabbled in astronomy as well. Now, um, making the body of the scorpion, or maybe the bait on the fish hook of Maui, is Antares. Antares is another red supergiant creeping towards its stellar doom, because it's cobbled up all of its hydrogen. Now, um, uh, that is a great star to spot. Antares sometimes means the anti-Mars, or the rival of Mars. It's a good thing that these two objects will be in the same sky, but um, quite far away from each other at this point. Um, a fantastic sight in the constellation of Scorpius is the Bug or Butterfly Nebula. This is a bipolar planetary nebula, and it has one of the most complex structures that uh, we have ever seen. Um, it has a star in its center, another star that's coming to its final stages, but this one is burning at some of the hottest temperatures recorded in a star in our entire galaxy, which is quite cool. Now, between Scorpius and Sagittarius is a zone designated Sagittarius A, and it is our galactic center, the middle point of our Milky Way, or the bulge of the Milky Way, making up of some of the brightest and star-rich regions in our night sky. So we've noted some intense radio feedback from the zone, as many astronomers believe that in the center of our galaxy, and in fact the center of every galaxy, is a supermassive black hole holding it together. So take a look at that. Obviously you wouldn't be able to pick up any of the feedback from the black hole, but it's still a spectacular sight to see in the night sky. And on a clear night you can follow the Milky Way up to the Crux constellation, or the Southern Cross, as it's better known. Um, it is the smallest constellation, but arguably the most well-known in the south, and it's um, on a lot of our flags as well. Uh, we can use the pointer stars, the reddish-orange Alpha Centauri and the blue-white Beta Centauri, to make sure that we have the right cross shape in the night sky. Now we can use uh, the star in the Crux constellation, uh, Beta Cruxus, to help us find the Jewel Box Cluster, which is a very beautiful cluster of stars that we can see. Um, we also have in this region of the night sky, if we're still following up on the Milky Way, the Southern Pleiades, another great cluster to look at. These clusters um, having, uh, we can pick out some of the colors in the cluster depicting stars at different uh, stages of their lives um, and different sizes, which uh, makes for some great telescope observations. Now for a little bit of a challenge, and if you want to look at another dying star, which seems to be a bit of a theme for this month, you can look towards the constellation of Carina. Now Carina lies just next to the Crux constellation, its brightest star being Canopus, which is also the second brightest star in our night sky. Carina used to be a part of a bigger constellation known as the Argo Navies, but it's now been divided into three, making Carina nice and circumpolar here for us in New Zealand. And if you look carefully, 
you can locate Eta Carinae. Now, the star is not visible to the naked eye. It was about 200 years ago when it went through an event known as an imposter supernova. So uh, it kind of exploded as it would with a supernova and ejecting a bunch of gas and dust everywhere and coming up very bright, outshining canopus at this time that it disappeared. Now, this hardy star is expected to maybe go through another event, such as an imposter supernova, or maybe finally go full supernova. So another star that we look out for that's creeping towards the end of its life. Now, if you're up late enough at about midnight on the 6th until the early hours on the 7th of May, you can catch the peak of the Ada Aquarids. Now, this is a spectacular annual meteor shower and is capable of producing up to 60 meteors per hour. So the meteors will obviously radiate from Aquarius, but we can see it across a lot of the night sky, and um, we have a much better view of it here in the Southern Hemisphere, um, as in the Northern Hemisphere, I believe they can only see about 30 meteors per hour, but still an above-average meteor shower for everyone to try and look at. Now, if you're up early enough, soon after dusk, Arteras will be appearing in the northeast, and will be seen twinkling as it's close to the horizon, which means its light will be broken up a little bit. It is the brightest star, the brightest red star, apologies, in the sky, and it will only be outshone by Mars. Um, it's about 120 times brighter than our own sun. Now, I think that's all for me for this month. And uh, remember to keep warm there if you are in the Southern Hemisphere, but don't let that stop you from going outside and looking up. Thanks for that, Jasmine and Gabby. And now we've got uh, actually quite a lot of feedback. I'm really, I'm really happy when this happens. with feedback. Yeah, we have <laughs> varying stuff. It's all positive. Um, so I, you've got an email from Fiona Healy. Sorry, yes. um, John well. Packer. Fiona Healy. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> so this email is uh, from well, John Packer. Brackets Fiona Healy. Um, you've taken the podcast to new heights. One could almost say out of this world. In inverted commas. A great idea, beautifully executed, and with a very interesting and insightful interview with the, inverted commas again, real Fiona Healy, and the problems for researchers after they enter the world. I was reminded of the short story, Spacemen Live Forever, which I must have read back in the late 60s. Not that it gives me any more hope for our future post-Brexit if Fiona is in charge. Real great programme. Keep up the good work. Regards, Fiona. So uh, I wonder if that was actually from Fiona. <laughs> no, I, I, no, I, I, I th it's, it's, um, it's the April, the Fiona, the Fiona show. Um, we have, we have Indeed. subsequently reclaimed ownership of the show from Fiona, um, who is off. Yeah, we're no longer sorting all Fiona. out Brexit. <laughs> um, yes. Um, we now have um, an email. That, this is possibly my favourite piece of feedback I've ever received on anything I've ever done. Um, and I've done many things in my short life. Um, <laughs> this is a um, an email from regional manager Darth Vader, um, who says, A droid has recently brought me your March Extra Jodcast. Your decision in the odds and ends section not to use Imperial measurements is disappointing. I pray you alter this decision. Signed, Mr. D. Vader, care of Laser Moon 2, Tree World in Orbit of. I didn't realise we were having James Little Jones on the show. Wow. Yes. <laughs> Well, I mean, I can do it again if you want the full... <laughs> a droid has recently brought me your March Extra Jodcast. 
Your decision in the odds and ends section not to use imperial measurements is disappointing. I pray you alter this decision. That was perfect. <laughs> so, um, so we we uh, uh, here at Manchester we were involved quite recently in a um, program called ScienceX, which is basically the Trafford Centre, which is the big shopping centre in Manchester. Um, lots of different uh, departments from the university, uh, all the research groups are basically unleashed, um, and we stand in the shopping centre shouting science, prophetizing uh, knowledge if you will. Um, but one of the things we had, um, so we were there at jo- as Jodrell Bank, uh, one of the things we had was we were sourcing some new um, some new questions for Ask an Astronomer um, from the public, uh, but we've also had a fair bit of feedback, and one of them was a question of when will there be another Jodcast live? We don't know. However, Try a sort of a thing. <laughs> however, having said all of this, I've also just read a note from Jake, who is um, the, the producer and also executive producer, uh, which says no comment. Um, yeah, no comment. Yeah, no comment. No, Oops. no. <laughs> <laughs> no comment from Jake. <laughs> <laughs> no comment from Jake. We're just speculating. Um, so we've got a few things from social media as well. So we've got something from Facebook. Oh, yes. So this is um, Mark Shaw, who said, Sure, it's a month of April 1st, or has the Fiona show sabotaged the servers? So this is in reference to Almanas being broken, Indeed. which we probably should reference at this point. So this is the May show. Probably isn't coming out. Yeah, I doubt in it's May. May at the minute. It like, probably is not for May. you anyway. It is. Well, it's not even for us. We're recording in April. Yes. So, <laughs> um, <but> so <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, the um, the server which hosts our uh, which hosts the Jodcast um, is broken. Mm-hmm. It's currently in Germany, um, being fixed. And by the time you listen to this, it will be back and up. But we have no idea when that will be. I really think we should start doing backups onto multiple servers. Probably. <laughs> Again, with the studio, it logistics, will all happen. Logistics, right? Logistics. Like, logistics. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, I have I have been told, though, that there is it is thought to be on its way back. Good, good. Um, so it should, if this is late, it should not be any later than most of our shows usually are. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, um, I mean, either way, if you're listening to us, then clearly it's back. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's back, or we've found an alternative solution. Um, so, oh, um, a final piece of feedback that we've had is uh, from our old friend Sarah B. Um, so you may remember Sarah from uh, a previous piece of Twitter feedback where um, the Jodcast was described as excellent fuel for insomniacs, or so, something to that effect, um, and. Uh, we've got another tweet from her um, in reference to someone asking for new podcasts, um, and um, yeah, Sarah, Sarah has told has said if she can't sleep, and apologies again for the fabulous people to produce it. Uh, I listen to the Jodcast, but you should listen awake sometimes because it is excellent. Um, <laughs> which we're taking the latter part of that, and that's our new slogan, as far as I'm concerned. Indeed. I quite like it. Indeed. Um, I'm loving the banter, Sarah, by the way. Just keep, <laughs> keep it off. Keep it coming. <laughs> uh, uh, so, if you have any uh, feedback for us, uh, be it we make you fall asleep, be it um, <laughs> be it you are some sort of sci-fi villain, um, or that you just want to actually listen to us witter on live... Um, then you can get in touch with us. Um, you can do so uh, via the website at www.jodcast.net. Uh, via Twitter at twitter.com forward slash jodcast. Facebook, facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com forward slash jodcast. Flickr, whoever uses that, at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. 
And don't forget that you can send us post and the address is on the website. So, um, that's all we've got time for today. Unfortunately, uh, due to all the interviews, we have no odds and ends, but we have a very spe- uh, big Mars segment that I'm planning. Um, I'm looking forward to that one. Whether or not we should actually go to Mars. So that's going to be properly researched and everything. So make sure you listen next month. Yeah, if it's next month. It might not be. Yeah, we'll um, but anyway, <laughs> right, that's enough. Right, we're done. So we... Um, Thanks to Emma, Alexander, and myself for the interviews. Um, again, shamelessly, <laughs> shamelessly unironic. Um, thanks to Emma, Alexander, and Josh Hayes for the interviews. The editors were Naomi Sambra-Frimprong, Emma Alexander, Beth Jones, Shriti Badol, and Tom Scrag. The producer was Jake Morgan. And until next time, Jod on! on.